You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the Dark Feminine. Uh, I'm your host, Breach Burke. And uh, this particular podcast, um, again, this is part of our series on uh, the dark Hindu mothers, starting with the uh, Das Mahavidyas, which is basically the ten um, manifestations of, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, Kali, Shakti, Parvati, um, that represent the different aspects uh, of the goddess and sort of of, uh, of of the feminine with a capital F. Um, and uh, this week, now actually, this is... Um, this is early March when I'm recording this, and um, my intention had been to record. I, I had rec- I've already recorded and actually put together with intro and everything uh, a whole podcast on the goddess Chinamasta. Um, however, I think what I'm going to end up doing, in spite of what I actually say in the podcast, is I'm going to actually flip episodes around, and I'm going to do this particular one first. I'm trying to record some in advance because um, I have some travel and some very busy things coming up uh, in the near future. Um, so today the goddess that I am going to cover of the Mahavidyas is the one who I believe is described as the ninth Mahavidya. I'm not going in, in any kind of traditional order, just so you know. Uh, and that is the goddess Matangi. Okay. Now there's a reason that I bring up Matangi right now. Um, I had, uh, actually this week, this, this, uh, coming week, I was actually slated to be at the Mid-Atlantic Region, uh, Conference of the American Academy of Religion. Uh, for which I am the chairperson of the psychology and religion section. And uh, I had about, we had about 10 papers and uh, three different sessions uh, put together uh, that I was trying to coordinate. So I was going to be down in Princeton for a couple of days. But what ended up happening is they canceled the entire conference because of uh, fears of coronavirus. Okay. Coronavirus is a big thing right now. Um, You know, in, in 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 years to come, when if, if if this podcast recording is still around and people are still listening to it, I think things last forever on the internet, don't they? Um, you know, <clears throat> coronavirus will hopefully be a thing of the past or a thing that we don't really talk about anymore. Uh, maybe by that time they'll have a vaccine or they'll have it under control or <clears throat> or whatever. Uh, the, the institution I work for full time is actually. Uh, we had plans this week for, you know, if we have to have a complete shutdown for like a month, which, you know, I wouldn't mind having a complete shutdown for a month. I'm not going to lie to you, <laughs> but um, but not because I want anybody to be sick. So, you know, <clears throat> it's um, but it's interesting. So I, I kind of I was having a conversation um, with a, a colleague of mine today. In fact, I think she listens to this podcast um, and. I, you know, we, we, so we were talking about um, the, the episode I had just recorded, and then, I don't know, it just occurred to me. I said, you know what? With all this talk about uh, disease and not spreading disease and, um, you know, mass infections and things like that, this would be a good time to talk about the Mahavidya who deals with pollution, okay? And when I say pollution, I mean impurity. Now, here's the thing. In religion in general, now we realize, okay, we, we already recognize from previous podcasts where we talk about the different goddesses, where we talk about the Tantra, um, <clears throat> you know, how Tantra is not, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't follow the same purity rules that, um, <clears throat> you know, that, that what we consider more traditional Hinduism, um, you know, your Brahmin caste kind of Hinduism. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of rules there, you know, about, you know, washing your feet, washing, you know, washing your hands, um, you know, wa- you know, bathing yourself, uh, you know, certain offerings that are made, um, you know, what you can eat on certain days, you know, there's, there's all kinds of rules. And uh, the Hindus, of course, are not the only ones to have these kinds of rules. Um, you see these kinds of rules in Judaism, in particular, uh, Jewish dietary laws, um, <clears throat> and laws about other things, too. Um, laws about, um, for example, women's menstruation, you know, can a woman, w- women are not supposed to enter, uh, the temple because they are polluted, um, when they're having their, um, monthly episode. And, um, you know, there's, so there's different things, um, there's different rules, but purity tends to be, um, <clears throat> a central feature, certainly of, of Western religion, but also of Eastern to a, to a large degree, 
there's definitely this idea. And of course, this this comes from the notion that when you're dealing with the sacred, you want to create a space that is not um, profane, that is not um, sullied by the ordinary and the everyday, because you are in the presence of the divine, you're in the presence of something extraordinary. However, one also has to remember that in the Eastern view of religion, the divine is present in all things, <clears throat> all people, all things. And thus, you know, in, in a certain sense, I mean, you know, purity might be more of an act of respect, but, you know, it's not, um, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to avoid impure acts if everything is imbued with divinity, you know what I mean? Because, you know, our days are not... Um, are not fully sanitized, you know, in, in, in terms of our actions and everything else. We don't, we don't all live like that. So um, I often find, I, like a lot of things, as you'll, as you'll discover the more you listen to these podcasts of mine, uh, that I, I'm not, I am not purity obsessed at all. And I feel like a lot of um, <clears throat> injunctions for purity, um, there's certain cases where um, one should, and obviously, you know, you're going to visit say, a temple or a synagogue, you know, you're gonna, you, if you're going to visit a house of worship, you, you you be respectful of whatever the rules are, okay? But by the same token, <clears throat> I just feel sort of in my own practice and so forth, I don't see purity as such a big thing. Now, where does the obsession with purity come from? Well, again, now, if we think about the fact that a lot of religion centers around death and the idea of death, well, what brings death? Disease, Right. People just notice that you know, people will get sick. I mean, sometimes people just get old. So old age is also another one. We'll talk about that when we get to Dumavati. Um, but when one gets sick, you know, one can die, you know, if, if um, they're not healed in some fashion. Uh, Nietzsche, I believe it was one who postulated that um, religions actually started as a, as a response to disease, like an early medical response, you know, um, and that that's where you have your early ideas of what you might think of as the demonic, you know, this... Um, this kind of um, entity or spirit that bears disease of some kind, and that um, <clears throat> if it possesses you, you too, you know, and that this is what will bring death, okay? So there's, um, so it's interesting. So the idea of purity, I think, is, it's, it's, I think has much to do with trying to push away illness or trying to push away, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> You know, in the way that we try to, you know, <clears throat> the way that we try to remain, you know, a type of health, okay? It's, it's a spiritual health, but it also may translate, um, certainly in ancient cultures, also to physical health, okay? So if we keep that in mind, so now we've been, we've been looking at um, the Mahavidyas, um, and one thing that we're going to find about them is that what they all seem to have in common is that, first of all, they deal with the edges of society, okay? They're, they're sort of out, you know, and they deal with lower castes, they deal with criminals, like a lot of these dark mothers do, as I'd mentioned, like the Santa Muerte. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of times they have to do with magic specifically, okay? So we can get into the whole witch connection there. Um, and the Mahavidyas, um, they, they tend to, they... Uh, represent what's what what is normally forbidden in religion. Bleh, can't talk in a religious context. Okay. So um, <clears throat> now I'm also going to just remind you, just for the sake of um, what we're going to get into here about Matungi, is that there are. If we remember that when the Hindus refer to the Devi, the Devi that they worship at Navaratri, it's a triple goddess. It's Durga, um, it's Lakshmi, and Sarasvati. Okay. Durga is a, is the warrior goddess. She is the one who is associated with um, the, she's sort of the remover of difficulties. Okay, <clears throat> Lakshmi is associated with true wealth. Okay, so that's not just material wealth; that's wealth of other kinds. Um, you know, spiritual. You know, wealth. Um, wealth of I don't know. I suppose if you value family, you know, having a big family. You know, things like that. Um, abundance. And then you have Sarasvati who is associated with music, with the arts, with learning, with literacy. Um, <clears throat> and um, Sarasvati is the one who is going to... It's, it said, I think I had mentioned that the matrikas are supposed to come from Sarasvati, that they issue forth from her. But some of the, in some versions, in this particular version, sometimes the Mahavidyas do as well. Okay, so 
let me get into Matangi and her <clears throat> her iconography and what she looks like. Okay, so um, she's usually um, you know depending there's there's sort of three different forms of um, uh, uh, Matangi. Okay, or actually really. But let's just say there's two main ones, and then there's a Buddhist one, okay? And that's going to be the other thing, too, by the way. It seems like, um, and I don't know which comes first, I mean, in terms of um, time, you know what I mean? Like, chronologically, I don't know which one comes first. But there's, an, is a, there's very much a connection between the Mahavidyas, some of the Matrikas, and Hindu, either Hindu deities or figures that, I'm sorry, not Hindu, Buddhist deities, or deities in Buddhist stories. And as, if, if you know anything about Buddhism, you realize that the deity <clears throat> is not, just, well, similar to Hinduism in that the, the deity is not ultimate. Okay, the deity tends to represent um, a quality or a force. Um, this is why we say Buddhism is technically an atheistic religion, because one does not worship the gods in Buddhism. Okay. Um, but as you'll see, too, that sometimes the, the gods and goddesses of Hinduism um, did not, if, if the Buddhist myth indeed came first, okay, they are not, um, gods or goddesses in the Buddhist myth. Okay, so, <clears throat> there's just, again, just to keep that in mind, because we're going to talk about that in a moment. Okay, so there's, um, her descriptions, um, and this one I'm taking from Wikipedia, and Wikipedia, of course, stole it from David Kinsley, which is the other book that I have, but the, you know, these are the good descriptions. Um, <clears throat> so she's either known as Uchista Chandalini, or Uchista Matangi. Now, Chandalini is the term or, uh, is for uh, somebody who's an outcast. We know in Hinduism, you know, we talk about some of the higher castes, you know, like the Brahmins are one of the highest castes. Um, there's like a warrior caste. There's, there's several different ones. I have a list of them somewhere, but not in front of me. But in any case, the lowest caste, I mean, people who are literally outcasts, they, they have no place in society. They live on the edges. They're beggars. They're, you know, they live in the forest. They're hunters, are known as Chandalini. <clears throat> okay, and by the way, they're also known as that in Buddhism as well. Okay, there is there is this idea of um, of that <clears throat> of Chandalini as well. Um, so there is a version of Matangi that is um, <clears throat> you know Ochista, and Ochista has to do with leftovers. Okay, you know if you go out to a restaurant and uh, take leftovers home, I do this all the time. This is actually how I ended up losing a tremendous amount of weight. Is that I go out to eat, I eat half, I take the other half home. You know, leftovers, right? Well. When it comes to offerings, leftovers are considered to be impure and polluted. Um, however, Matangi, thri- Matangi wants leftovers. That's what you actually offer to her. Okay, so she's a chandalini. She's an outcast, um, and the uchista is the um, partially eaten food. Now that's one version of her. Um, <clears throat> now there's another version of Matangi called Raja Matangi. And there's some beautiful images of her. There's a really beautiful painting of her that I remember seeing in a friend's house. Um, and I'm, my, if I can find it, I'll put it in the YouTube version. But it's where she is sort of represented as an emerald green color. Um, and uh, Uchista Matangi carries a new sword, goad, and a club. Her other form, Raja Matangi, plays the vena and is often pictured with a parrot. Okay. And the vena is a stringed instrument, and that is what makes her <clears throat> reminiscent of the goddess Saraswati. In fact, she is considered to be the tantric Saraswati. Um, and there's a connection. Uh, Saraswati is also considered to be the sister of Shiva. So um, you'll see that there's at least one myth of Matangi where he, you know, she is a sister of Shiva. So there's there's an way and there's an attempt to connect her to um, to Sarasvati there. But there there may there may be, you know, sort of an actual connection when especially when you hear what Matangi's attributes are. Um she is um <clears throat> associated, like I said, her associations are uh the lowest caste, the outcasts, pollution, offerings of leftover food, impurity, menstrual rags. That's something you would offer to her when you when you've had your period, those those wonderful, you know, maxi pads, tampons, well they probably use something else back in those days, but that would be an offering to Matangi. Um, and she's also associated with the forest, uh, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit more depth, um, because that represents a specific attribute of her. Um, now, she's also associated with acquiring supernatural powers, particularly gaining power over enemies or attracting people. Okay? <clears throat> so, um, and again, that does figure into her stories. She has to do with acquiring mastery over the arts, and there's her another relationship to Sarasvati. 
okay? And also, interestingly, an orthodox knowledge of the scriptures, okay? And so when we say orthodox, we mean very thorough and also very traditional, which, again, given all of her other attributes, that's very interesting and maybe a little strange. But um, that is that is also part of her connection as, as a... Um, sort of an aspect of Sarasvati, as if, it, if you will. I mean, she's a deity in her own right, but um, she is connected to Sarasvati. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, and I, I have, she's invoked to uh, subdue others and also to attract others to you. Okay, so um, some of the other descriptions of her. Um, <clears throat> here I have in the Dhyana. Uh, the Brat Tantrasara describes uh, Uchista Matangi, um, as seated on a corpse, wearing red garments, red jewelry, and a garland of gunja seeds. Uh, she's described as young, 16-year-old maiden with fully developed breasts. By the way, you'll see that repeated a lot. Fully developed breasts, okay? some reason, that is an attribute. It, there's there's a definitely a <clears throat> sexual and appealing aspect to her. It says this, this particular one, she carries a skull and a sword in her two hands and is offered leftovers. Okay? In... Um, Parash Charyanava uh, and the Tantrasara, Matangi is described as blue in color. Crescent moon adorns her forehead. Okay, so there's that moon connection. She has three eyes and a smiling face. She wears jewelry and is seated on a jeweled throne. In her forearms, she carries a noose, a sword, a goad, and a club. Her waist is slim, and once again, they say her breasts are well-developed. This is actually in the Dhyana. So when you say, say, we meditate upon Matangi, who, one of the things you're meditating on is that she has full breasts. So, um... I'm not just <clears throat> throwing that in there for uh, effect. Um, now, Faraja Matangi, um, also from the same, um, I hope I'm reading this right because I'm trying to read it fast, uh, Parasha Charyanava, uh, Matangi is described as green with a crescent mood on her forehead. She has long hair, a smiling expression, intoxicated eyes, okay, and wears a garland of kadamba flowers and various ornaments. She perspires a little around the face, so she's a little dirty, but that renders her even more beautiful. Below her navel are three horizontal folds of skin. Interesting location for them. Seated on an altar and flanked by two parrots. She represents the 64 arts. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the Saradatilaka uh, adds to this description that Raji, Raja Matangi plays the vena, wears conch shell earrings and flower garlands, and has flower paintings adorning her forehead. Okay. This makes her kind of a, in, in Indian terms, sort of like um, <clears throat> a country dweller or, you know... Um, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, innate, very nature-oriented or, you know, because the conch obviously has to do with the sea that's nearby, um, but also um, <clears throat> with the forests and, and wild places. Uh, she is also depicted wearing a garland of white lotus. Here, lotus signifies multicolored world creation, similar to goddess Sarasvati's uh, iconography as well. Um, <clears throat> in other versions, she plays a ruby-studded vena and speaks sweetly. She's sometimes described to be forearmed with a dark emerald complexion, full breasts anointed with red kumkum powder. That's that's the word I couldn't think of before. The red powder that they put on your forehead as a bindi. It's kumkum. Some reason I was thinking it was. Um, I know vibhuti is the white powder, but uh, it's kumkum. And a crescent moon on her forehead. She carries a noose goad, sugar cane bow, and flower arrows, which also the goddess Tripura Sundari is described as holding. She is also described to love the parrot and is embodied in the nectar of song. Okay. <clears throat> Um, and it's mentioned here, again, this is sort of the Wikipedia summary, green complexion is associated with deep knowledge, and it's also the color of Buddha <clears throat> and the presiding deity of the planet Mercury, who governs intelligence. Um, I thought Buddha was associated with Jupiter. No, that's Guru, sorry. Okay. Uh, Matangi is often depicted with a parrot in her hands representing speech, okay, because obviously because parrots can talk. The Venus symbolizes her association with music. Okay. <clears throat> so, Okay. So um, let's uh, let's start here. Let's talk about some of her stories. I want to talk about her um, her origin stories. And um, David Kinsley actually starts with the. Um, let me find the beginning here. Um, <clears throat> he actually begins with the um, uh, the Divya Vadana, which is a Buddhist collection of stories um, from written about two fifty to three hundred CE. And he says there's a tale of a hunter king named Matanga and his daughter. He says certain details of the story bear a striking similarity to later characteristics of the goddess Matangi's nature and mythology. 
that it is relevant to mention it as a possible intimation or, or perhaps even a very early version of this Mahavidya goddess. Okay, so here's the story. Once upon a time, the Buddha's disciple Ananda went out begging for food. After getting some, he became thirsty. He saw a girl drawing water from a well, approached her, and asked for water. The girl answered, My name is Prakriti, meaning nature, and I am Chandala, a low caste. I am the daughter of Matanga. Should I give you water? Ananda replied, I am not asking what your caste is. I am only asking for water. He took water from her, and as he drank, Prakriti admired his youthful body and became fascinated by him. Her desire for him grew, and she yearned to have him as her husband. After Ananda <clears throat> excuse me, had returned to the monastery, Prakriti asked her mother, Mahavidyari. Now, that's interesting. Mahavidyari. Mm-hmm. Okay. She who was skilled in the great um, mantras. Okay, because vidya has to do with knowledge. Okay, so it's very similar there. Asked if she would attract Ananda to her by the appropriate rituals and mantras. Now, remember here also how Matangi is associated with um, magic and attraction. So you see a connection here, too. Her mother hesitated. She feared trouble from the local king, <clears throat> excuse me, who was a devotee of the Buddha. And she also doubted whether her magic could overcome the power of the Buddha to protect his disciples. At first, she refused her daughter, but when Krakriti threatened suicide if she could not have Ananda, her mother agreed to try and capture him by magic. The mother cleaned an area near her house, built an altar, offered up flowers in the fire on the altar, and began to recite mantras to attract Ananda to her daughter. So adept was she, and so powerful the mantras, that she was able to harness the forces of lightning and rain to help her. By her magic, Ananda's heart became agitated as he remembered Prakriti's charm, and he left the monastery to seek her out. Um, As he approached Prakriti's home, her mother saw him coming and instructed Prakriti to beautify herself and prepare a bed for lovemaking, which she did. Arriving there, Ananda stood near the mother's altar and began to weep. He prayed to the Buddha to rescue him, and the Buddha, aware of his predicament, nullified the power of the Chandala woman's mantras. Ananda became calm and returned to the monastery. When Prakriti discovered that the Buddha had overcome her mother's magic, she went herself to the Buddha, who asked what she wanted. She was frank and said that she desired Ananda for her husband. The Buddha told her the only way she could share Ananda's company was to become a nun herself. Prakriti, seeing the short-sightedness of her cravings for Ananda, and impressed with the teachings of the Buddha, agreed to be initiated as a nun. Her hair was cut off, and she was given the simple garb of a Buddhist nun. After Prakriti's entrance into the order, the Buddha told her a story to put it in perspective. So he tells her a story of a Matangaraja, who is actually um, a chief elephant hunter. Um, And and, and it was kind of the reverse, that um, Prakriti was actually the daughter of a Brahmin, okay? And uh, he wanted to marry her, but when they realized he, um, when Prakriti's father realized he was low caste, he shunned him until he realized that he had abundant knowledge of spiritual matters, the arts, and the sciences. By the way, all the things Matangi is associated with. So the Brahmin relented and allowed the marriage to take place. So it's kind of like they reversed roles. So now Prakriti is the low caste one, and Ananda is the one who is, um, um, you know, um, higher, higher caste, um, although the son was uh, named um, Shadula Karna. <clears throat> so that was the mutual attraction in this life. Okay. So, um, so that's interesting. Um, we see a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the elements of the Matangi story. We see uh, the fact that she is low caste. Um, we see the use of magic. We see the association with the Mahavidyas. We see the association, um, you know, here with the, um, the discussion of knowledge of the arts and sciences and of magic and of mantras. All of this is connected to, um, uh, to uh, Matangi, okay, to the, uh, to the Hindu Matangi. So, okay, so that's, that's sort of the Hindu, the connection, connecting Hindu story. Um, again, wh- whether um, Matangi became a goddess in Hinduism after that story, we don't quite know. But, um, okay, so how is Matangi technically born in Hindu thinking? Well, supposedly... Um, the story goes that there's a meeting of the gods Vishnu and his consort Lakshmi, the goddess of true wealth. They go to meet and they have a sort of a dinner or a meeting with um, <clears throat> Parvati and Shiva. Okay, It's like a dinner party for the gods. And um, so as they are sitting and they, um, they are sharing food, some of the food falls onto the floor. And out of the scraps of food that has fallen to the floor, 
a woman, a, a, a goddess arises and she asks to have the leftovers, to have the scraps. <clears throat> and they are given to her as kind of a prasad, prasad being um, sort of a food or usually it's a food gift that is given um, after a puja. In this case, it would be the food that the god has eaten first and then is, there, then is therefore given. Because the idea is the prasad is offered to the god first and then um, people eat it afterwards. Okay, <clears throat> so that is supposedly how Matungi became uh, born. And uh, then she was, of course, made in, in, into a goddess. I think if I have, um, yes, Shiva said to the attractive maiden, those who repeat your um, <clears throat> uh, mantra will worship you. Their activities will be fruitful. They will be able to control their enemies and obtain the objects of their desires. From then on, this maiden became known as Uchista Matanganini. Matanganini. Gosh. My God, too many syllables. She is the bestower of all boons. Okay, so she's actually, it's funny, for a polluted goddess, she's actually quite auspicious. Okay. So that's that's one story of how Matungi came to be. There's another story that involves Parvati. Okay. Um, and in this story, um, <clears throat> this is in the um, uh, Pranatoshini Tantra. Uh, it says, and I'm going to, again, I'm reading this from David Kinsley directly. Once upon a time, Parvati was seated on Shiva's lap. She said to him that he always gave her anything she wanted, and now she had a desire to return to her father's home for a visit. Would he consent to her visiting her father, Himalaya, if she asked? Shiva was not happy about granting her this wish, <clears throat> but eventually complied, saying if she did not come back in a few days, he would go there himself and ask for her return. Parvati's mother sent a crane to carry Parvati back to her family home. When she did not return for some days, Shiva disguised himself as an ornament maker and went to Himalaya's house. He sold shell ornaments to Parvati and then seeking, <clears throat> excuse me, seeking to test her faithfulness, asked that she have sex with him as his payment. Parvati was outraged at the merchant's request and was ready to curse him. Then she discerned with her yogic intuition that the ornament vendor was really her husband, Shiva. Concealing her knowledge of his true identity, she replied, yes, fine, I agree, but not just, not, not just now. Sometime later, Parvati disguised herself as a huntress and went to Shiva's home <clears throat> where he was preparing to do evening prayer. Um, she danced there near Manas Lake. She wore red clothes and her body was lean, her eyes wide, and her breasts large. Admiring her, Shiva said, who are you? She replied, I am the daughter of Chandala. Okay, another outcast. I've come here to do penance. And Shiva said, I am the one who gives fruits to those who do penance. Saying this, he took her hand, kissed her, and prepared to make love to her. While they made love, Shiva himself was changed into a Chandala. Okay, so Shiva pollutes himself in this one. At this point, he recognized the Chandala woman as his wife, Parvati. After they had made love, Parvati asked Shiva for a boon, which he granted. Her request was this, as you, Shiva, made love to me in the form of a Chandalini, this form will last forever and be known as Uchista Chandalini, which, or Matangi. Only after performing worship, suitable worship to this form, will you, Shiva, be worshipped and your worship be made fruitful. Okay, now this is really interesting. So in other words, you have to take the form of the polluted. And if anything, it's certainly the first thing that jumps out about me, about me, at me, <laughs> about this story, get my uh, prep, uh, uh, words mixed up here, um, <clears throat> is that, um, you know, the, there's the idea that divinity exists even in what is perceived to be the lowest form. So even the outcasts have a divinity to them, okay? Some people would do well to remember that. Um so, yeah, so it's, it's this kind of idea of the hidden divinity uh, that's in everything, um, even in that. There's also a, a testament to the youthful and sexual nature of Matangi. When we think about impu sexual impurity, okay, um, that's, that's really a concept in the West. I suppose to a certain degree it's also a concept in the East. Um, <clears throat> it is in all cultures in terms of, you know, proper social standing and um, – you know, um, making suitable marriages and making families and so forth and <clears throat> following tradition. But um, so there's, there's a sense uh, about Matangi of this kind of sexual indiscretion because you notice what's being tested here is faithfulness, okay? So there's an element there uh, of that. Um, but also, again, you know, the divine is recognized in the Chandala, in the lowest caste. Okay, there's another myth um, from the Svatantra Tantra. Um, it says, uh, 
Now, this is about the sage Matunga. Matunga undertakes austerities to gain power to subdue all creatures. He persists um, for thousands of years until in a burst of bright light, uh, Tripura Sundari, or in some cases Saraswati, appears before him. She emits bright rays from her eyes, and then first Kali emerged. Then Kali took on a greenish complexion and assumed the form of Raja Matanganini. With the help of this goddess, Matanga was able to realize his desire to control all creatures. Okay? And then there's a fourth story, um, which is a more told, which was told orally to David Kinsley, so it wasn't written down. Um, now this is the myth of Koriba. Now this is the one that connects her to Saraswati, uh, and he said that's a name that associates her with the cowrie shell, who is a sister of Shiva. She was particularly fastidious and preoccupied in a high-caste Brahmin sort of way with purity and pollution. She was annoyed with Shiva, who had many habits that she considered disgusting such as spending time in the cremation ground, imbibing intoxicants, and associating with ghosts and goblins. Shiva sounds like a lot of fun to hang out with. Um, he was completely inconsiderate of her attempts to keep their house pure, and would often track ashes from the cremation ground into her freshly cleaned house. After Shiva married Parvati, Parvati made polite overtures to Koriba, inviting her to visit them. Koriba, however, refused all these friendly gestures, complaining bitterly to Parvati about Shiva's disgusting habits. Finally, like a good wife, Parvati took umbrage at the abuses being leveled at her husband and cursed Shiva's sister to be reborn in an untouchable community and to spend her life there. So she was reborn in the untouchable area of Varanasi and in such polluted circumstances found herself very unhappy. She went to Shiva, lord of Varanasi, um, Kashi Vishvanatha, who gave her the boon that people on pilgrimage to Varanasi would have to worship at her shrine before their journey could be considered complete. So in that version, uh, Koriba actually becomes Matangi. But she's not happy being Matangi because she's purity-obsessed. Now that's another um, story that I like because the people who tend to be purity-obsessed, it's like the people that we tend to think of as being the very religious. They're very um, judgmental um, because they're not only interested in maybe your own cleanliness, okay? Cleanliness is next to godliness, right? Um, but also um, in judging you, uh, the purity of your life, your choices. Uh, in Western terms, we know how sinful you are. Uh, although in the West, they're going to try to save you from your sins, because um, obviously you're in need of saving from something, I guess. I don't know what. But um, yes, but the idea of um, <clears throat> people sitting in judgment on, you know, yeah, so if you do like to go out and, and enjoy drinks, or if you enjoy good food, or if you enjoy sex outside of a certain context, or um, especially if you're a woman, um, you know, that this is not, um, you know, um, this is sinful, you know, so she's almost that kind of a person. And so Parvati sort of gives it back to her. And she's like, okay, well, now you're gonna, you know, you're so concerned with pollution. Now you're going to live in pollution. Okay. And um, so, um, you know, so that's, that's a very, um, you know, interesting stories here associated with Matangi because she's, and I like, I think I'm drawn to her because she does turn the social order like on its head. You know, the things that she does, uh, it's said that worship of Matangi, uh, anybody can worship her. Um, it doesn't matter. There's no special requirements. There's no purifications. In fact, they say when you make offering to Matangis, not only should you give her um, leftover food, but your your face and your hands should be smeared with leftover food. Like, it's like literally like it, she's a goddess about being dirty. Okay. And probably if you are menstruating, it's probably perfectly acceptable. Uh, acceptable. Acceptable. <laughs> I'm sorry. My, I, I don't know what it is. My, my, I just keep feeling like, you know, I, I've been drinking a ton of water today and I feel like my mouth is drying out like perpetually. So, so forgive me for that if it's I'm a little weird, but, um, you know, <clears throat> so, um, <laughs> So I think that's one thing I really like about her is that she kind of just throws all of that away. Um, so so what do we have here? Okay, so the way that, the, that we think of as the Brahmin or the more traditional Hindu way of worship, which is which is very much about purity and about rules and, and things like that, as it is in a lot of um, major religions, um, you know, there's – you know, there's, you know, there's this idea, it, it definitely fits into the tantric idea that, that purity is not, purity is overrated. Um, it's fine to be pure. Okay, so like I said, back to our coronavirus. Um, yes, it, it's good to wash your hands. It's good to um, try to disinfect the surfaces around you or to use, you know, hand sanitizer. It's good, you know, all normal things, actually, you know, don't, you know, don't sneeze on people, don't, you know, 
Um, you know, um, I'm about to actually get on a plane to England soon. So and I'm like, oh, great, I'm going to be getting on a plane. I think I'm going to bring my antibiotic wipes, you know. There's certain circumstances where it's good to be um, to focus on purity. And by the way, though, I'm going to add kind of as an aside to that, there are some people like Koriba who are way too obsessed with um, physical cleanliness and purity. And it was interesting. I just read an article in Psychology Today about the coronavirus. Um, and one of the things that they were saying is that there is like a psychological correlation between um, <clears throat> and, and and I don't know. I mean, there's there, there's there's studies that show there's a relationship between people who are overly concerned with cleanliness and the conservativeness of their attitude. You know, the strictness of their you know morality or their judgment of people. Okay, so um, or or there are perhaps um, more extreme uh, ways of, of following religion, for example, <clears throat> um, seem to be connected to their obsession. People who um, who are constantly disinfecting, using antibacterial everything. Um, you know, they get a little cough and they run to the doctor for an antibiotic, um, or they, or their kids, and then they always wonder why they're sick all the time. Okay, because you can be over concerned with purity. Um, just as um, you, you know, again, common sense cleanliness is one thing. When you when you go out of your way to try to like annihilate every germ, like in your, you know, in a in a five hundred mile radius, um, you're going to have problems because you need some of those germs. You need some of that bacteria, and that's also kind of the point. You know, this is this is part of what it means to be alive. And some of those things are actually a boon to you. They're not. Um, they're not a, uh, they're not something to be eliminated or annihilated. Okay. And, you know, there's, there's, there's healthy bacteria, there's healthy things. And, and in a way, um, now Matungi is said to be the one who hangs out on the outskirts and the polluted, um, things are brought to her and supposedly she devours the pollution and therefore removes it from the community. That's one interpretation. Um, but she's seen as a beneficent and an auspicious goddess, Okay, so she is the polluted one who is auspicious. So you can perhaps think of her in terms of some of those good things that you don't want to get rid of, you know. Um, and, and by the way, this is not like extorting people, like especially with the, with an epidemic going around um, to to not be clean or to not do certain things. Um, certainly, uh, you want to be careful, but you know people can overdo it, and I have seen people who try to overdo it on you know getting rid of the germs you know, perpetually catching things and perpetually getting sick. And I believe the reason that they are is because they're over-concerned with purity. Uh, a little, again, reminds me a little of that story because it's like, okay, you're so concerned with purity, now you're going to be filled with impurity all the time. So, um, so interesting to, to kind of think about that there. Now, okay, so there's another aspect of Matungi that I would like to talk about. I mean, we've talked about her as an outcast, um, We've talked about this um, this sort of um, sexual nature of her too. She she definitely has that kind of um, vibe to her as well. You know, you know the the, the young <clears throat> the young sexually vibrant girl. Um, but she's also associated with the forest. Okay. Now I have a th something here. Let me just uh, find my notes on it. There's a she. Um, let's see. Let me just find, um, <clears throat> let me find, there's a, uh, okay, yeah, here's, here's what I'm looking for. Okay, this is also from David Kinsley. Matungi is closely identified with a goddess named um, Shaveshvari, meaning mistress of the Shavaras. The Shavaras are a tribal people often mentioned in Sanskrit literature, and they typify forest culture, life beyond the boundaries of civilized society. Saveshvedi is described as 16 and short in stature. She is entirely clothed in leaves and wears a garland of gunja seeds and an ear earrings of creepers. She holds a basket made of vines and is collecting fruit with her right hand and is smiling and singing. She's almost like the original Chiquita lady or something, like with all the foliage she's wearing. This goddess, or this form of Matangi, puts into sharp focus one aspect, her association with the forest. In her thousand named hymn, her Sahasranama Stotra, from the Nayandavarta Tantra, Matangi bears several epithets that associate her with Saveshvari. She is called she who lives in the forest, who walks in the forest, who knows the forest, who enjoys the forest, and Shivari. In her hundred name hymn, from the Rudraya Mala, she is said, like Saveshvari, to love music. 
In her Dhyana Mantra, the Sharada Tilaka Tantra, Raja Matangi is said to listen to the chattering of green parrots to play a veena, to have paintings of leaves on her forehead, and to wear flower garlands in her hair and conch shells as earrings. She is also said to control all wild animals. This association with Shaveshvadi affirms and reinforces Matangi's identity with the forest and which tribal tribal culture, both of which are strongly other from the point of view of high caste Brahmin society. Now let's think about um, some previous podcasts, if you're a regular listener. Um, one that comes to mind immediately is the podcast about Baba Yaga, because one of the things Joanna mentioned in that podcast was the fact that Baba Yaga is, she is the witch, she's the old woman in the forest. Okay, she kind of is associated with nature. In this case, remember, prakriti means nature in the Buddhist story, and that is associated with um, Matangi and the qualities of Matangi. Now, this Matangi is very obviously a nature woman, kind of living um, in the forest. And um, <clears throat> we think of Baba Yaga, you know, you have to go into the forest to find her. And so when you find her... Um, you know, it's 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 kind of a um, an outcast and dangerous place. Now, the difference, of course, is that Matungi is kind of has a much more um, for all of her impurities, she's actually considered quite auspicious. Um, but that association, you know, the idea of the ones who are who you know the women especially who are powerful, who who live on the outskirts, who are wild and live with nature, okay. And um, which is why I think she can be very readily identified as kind of like a force, like a force of nature. Um, You know, this 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 sort of impure force of nature Um, and perhaps the one that can be appealed to also to help um, rid rid someone of disease that that might cause death, for instance. And I believe she sort of um, invoked in that way. However, also, um, Kingsley mentions as a last thing that she's the goddess of magical powers. And so this, um, and a lot of times her offerings are made at crossroads, okay? Um, I think I have a note here, yes. On page 218 here. Let's see. Okay, in the Nepalese context, okay, this has to do because Matangi is worshipped in Nepal. Uh, Polluted substances and items are associated with special rocks called chwasas that are set up at crossroads, a very common location for getting rid of dangerous things. Remains of sacrificed official animal heads offered to deities, clothes worn by people just before they died, and other such things are disposed of at the uh, uh, chwasas. According to some people, the deity associated with these chaswas is the dangerous goddess Matangi, who is believed to consume these dangerous materials. Like the untouchables among whom she is found, that is, she gets rid of pollution by accepting it as an offering, and in so doing lives up to her name, Uchista Matangini. Okay. Um, So, crossroads. Now, what's another goddess that we identify with the crossroads? Well, Hecate. And uh, offerings were made. Hecate suppers were also left uh, at the crossroads. These were some certain kinds of offerings, uh, also considered to be sort of polluted places associated with death. Uh, criminals were often hung at a crossroads, and the idea was that their soul could not, you know, would be confused at the crossroads and would not be able to find its way back to the community or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, so we have this goddess who's on the outside. She's associated with magical powers and also with crossroads. So we're seeing some connections here to this kind of witchcraft vibe, okay? She kind of has takes on the archetypal characteristics of the witch, in a way, because she is very... <clears throat> but again, she's interpreted somewhat differently. She is associated with nature. She is associated with what is outside polite society and what is other. But, um, but she is approachable in that sense. She is the one that one brings their leftovers to. She's the one that, oh, this is polluted. Matangi will take care of it for you. You know, she's, um, she is associated with, with all of those, um, those kinds of things. But, um, and if we think about the archetype of the witch, um, the witch obviously has her magical powers and the crossroads of course is also a very liminal place. Okay. It's a place, um, in between. So, you know, you're kind of neither here nor there. So, um, and that's another expression of liminality of being on the border of being on the edge um, and what, um, what unknown forces, these magical forces that lie on the edge, okay, and that need to be appeased and, and, or, uh, you know, propitiated in their own way. So, <clears throat> even though 
so again, and, and she is she is invoked. Her mantras are invoked for um, supernatural powers. Uh, so, um, or for like I said, for subduing someone or, or for attracting them. So Matungi is really kind of almost a type of witch goddess in a way, um, and she kind of fits the the archetype of the witch that we have in the West. As the, um, I mean, she's not portrayed as an old woman. That's the only thing. She's portrayed as a very young, attractive woman. But she's sexually licentious. Um, you know, she is uh, <clears throat> she is not concerned with purity, and generally, your sort of wise woman type person uh, may not be concerned with such things. You know, they're not they're not following the orthodox um, way of doing things, say in a church or a temple. You know, you're doing things in the wild, and that can be you know things in the wild can be dirty, right? You know, being out in the forest, being um, in that space. That is that 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 puts you in touch with the other in the way that the shaman is in touch with the other, um, and the shaman is almost considered to be even though the shaman is respected, the shaman is also considered to be polluted in the sense that um, you've been to the other side, so you really can't live among people. You know that's always kind of the tribal um, idea. The shaman is it lives on the edge, and so in that sense, Matungi has a lot to do with the kind of shamanistic or or with, you know magical associations there. Um, and, and it's interesting how those translate uh, to the West. Um, given that there's um, a lot of, uh, myth, you know, what we'll call mythology and religion in the Near East that, that has, you know, that bears uh, striking similarities to the Far East, um, one has to wonder if some of these kinds of associations of the Mahavidyas, maybe particularly Matangi, uh, influenced ideas about these, these uh the, the sort of um, triple goddesses and, and, and so forth are the ones, the goddesses uh, dealing with witchcraft and crossroads like Hecate. Um, I mean, there's no, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there's a scholarly connection there that's been made, but I do wonder about it, you know, because they're so similar or whether this is just, we're talking about something that's kind of archetypal, this, this complex set of associations with a deity who is actually polluted um, but grants these kinds of boons. And the fact, and the very fact that you can't um, get, gain certain things or gain certain favors without appealing to Matangi indicates the value of pollution and the value of impurity. Okay? Now, this is not meant to be a moral tale, again, back to coronavirus, so that, of, you know, you know, screw it, you know, don't, don't be clean. It's not, we're not, we're not doing, that's not where I'm trying to go with this. But I... <clears throat> but I do wonder, as I see the, the kinds of obsessions with purity that we have in our society and of being cleaner and cleaner and killing more and more things off that may protect us, um, how more and more things, strains in the environment come about that, you know, that are, are going to defeat or overcome uh, the, the fixes that we have, the vaccines, the antibiotics, the... Um, you know, uh, these other other kinds of medications that we have to try to uh, manage our immune response. And uh, the more we become dependent on things like high-powered antibiotics, the weaker we become as a species, you know. So there's a value to remembering the value of impurity, of, of a certain amount of it. You need a certain amount of impurity. And you cannot, you cannot live your life like in a bubble, like, you know, encased in Clorox. It's, and, and don't drink it, for God's sake. I, I'm sure nobody who listens to this would even think of doing something like that. But, you know, I mean, it's, um, but you never, but, you know, just, just in case somebody ever thought about it or told you it was a good idea and you weren't sure, don't do that. Because um, you'll die. Um, so it's, you know, th this kind of over-obsession with, um, with purifying our environment of things that we find... Um, distasteful um you know um you know the psychology today article of course was trying to take an evolutionary psych approach and say like well you know it's the pathogens in our body they they breed a kind of repulse response in us when we encounter these things um which which they also said can translate to people who we think are polluted as well um, so that's, that's a rather interesting take. I, I don't invest much in evolutionary psych, but there is certainly a truth to the idea that we, um, we, you know, as humans, you know, and they, there's probably a biological reason that we are, um, repelled by certain things. But just remember that sometimes it's just kind of like when you were a kid and you sat outside and like played in the dirt and ate mud pies and it's like, oh my God, how disgusting. But in a certain sense, you may have been inoculating yourself against certain things. 
It's the same way vaccines work. Um, Again, I assume everybody who listens here knows how a vaccine works, but that's what it does. It's basically you're infecting yourself and that little bit of infection, like it's like you're getting a dead form of the virus or, or the, you know, disease, whatever it is. You're being in sort of infected with it uh, so that you then become immune to it. And that's part of it, too. You, you, can't, you can't avoid things. You know, you need to encounter them. And once you encounter them, then they may lose their sting over you. Okay? So uh, this, you know, it's the same, same reason that life isn't all pleasure and no pain. You know, you, the, the more things you encounter, the stronger you actually become both physically, mentally, you know, psychologically, emotionally, um, perhaps spiritually. Um, but, um, but nonetheless, that's the, um, that, is, that is the value of the impure. So with that, I think I am going to um, uh, bid you adieu. Um, on the YouTube version, I will have my links posted here. And as I keep mentioning, I'm hoping for a May re kind of a relaunch of Cathonia.net. Cathonia.net is still there, but I've kind of gotten the the podcast page has gotten to be so overloaded and cumbersome. It's easier to go to metapsychosis.com or just to subscribe or just to go to YouTube. And I plan to um, I, I want to make that page much more user friendly and and far less dense. Um, but I need to work with somebody on that. It's just one of those things. I have the long list of things that I'm trying to get through right now. And that's one of them. But I'm hoping that um, May 20th will be the one year anniversary of this podcast. So I'm hoping that I will have things uh, reset and uh, relaunched by then. And I'm hoping to have some cool little campaigns or, you know, advertising or contests or something to kind of go with the relaunch. So uh, Cathonia.net, so but it is still there and the content is still there. And you can see the other things that I that I do. Uh, if you want to support my work, patreon.com slash Cathonia. That's, uh, that's still there. And thank you to those of you, again, very much who still do support me. And um, the uh, and again, I'm available on social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Cathonia Podcast and all those places. I believe it's one word on twitter and instagram and it's two words on facebook sometimes i get that mixed up a little bit but it, you know you you look it up you should find it uh and of course youtube as a uh, cathonia uh so anyway so that's that's it for this uh, particular episode um and uh, i wish you well please i hope you you are not sick and don't get sick with the coronavirus or you know anything else terrible and until the next episode